this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today the proposed bharatiya nyaya sanhita or bns may soon replace the indian penal code or ipc a piece of legislation that has dealt with crimes and their punishments since 1860 one of the clauses under the bns clause 69 has recently sparked off a debate clause 69 says that if a man promises to marry a woman but does not actually intend to marry her and still has consensual sex with her this will amount to a criminal offence sex under deceitful means or false promises to marry may be punished with a prison term that can extend up to 10 years with this a separate section has been carved out differentiating these cases from rape cases criminalizing sex based on a false promise to marry is not new in india the courts have interpreted such cases as rape for years relying on sections 375 and 90 of the existing ipc with the proposed clause 69 therefore consensual sex can be framed as rape if a man does not carry out his promise to marry the woman there's another element to this indian courts so far have distinguished between cases where the promise to marry was false from the beginning and a breach of promise where the man did intend to marry the woman but could not do so for legitimate reasons these reasons as per judgments can be parental opposition or if the parties are from different castes The courts have indicated that the woman should have known that marriage would not have been possible. But how can the intent to marry be established? What happens when the first instance of sex was forced and subsequently a promise to marry is made but is then not carried out? Should criminal law play a part at all in intimate relationships? And do such provisions undermine the sexual autonomy of women or are they the only way that women can claim damages when they have been harmed in a relationship? We discuss these issues and more with Nikita Sonaveni, a lawyer and co-founder of the Criminal Justice and Police Accountability Project, who was a visiting fellow at the University of Oxford. Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast, Nikita. Hi, it's really nice being here. Thank you for inviting me. Nikita, could you explain to us what Clause 69 of the Bharatiya Nyaya Sanhita says? So, Clause 69 of the Bharatiya Nyaya Sanhita. uh is basically saying two things one is is that it's speaking to sexual intercourse by employing deceitful means i mean it's it's saying that it's not rape but it's saying there are two kinds of sexual intercourse uh that are done by employing deceitful means which amounts to you know sexual violence and that's punishable by 10 years so one is you know when they say deceitful means uh, they mean if you are offering employment uh, or you know if you if the person has concealed in this case of course uh, the person being a man and the grief party being a cis woman uh, has the man being you know has concealed their identity uh, and the other is you know when uh, they've made a promise to marry or a promise of marriage uh, without any intention of fulfilling the said promise so that's what it's doing it's uh, it's in so many ways uh, a sort of building on uh, section 90 of the current indian penal code which is speaking to 
consent known to be given under fear or misconception uh, of fact so that's basically uh, you know consent where misconception of fact in many cases uh, has meant uh, misconception where somebody's you know given their consent or consented to a particular sexual act uh, under the impression that this person uh, who they've consented to have sex with is you know going to marry them so on the basis of a promise of marriage so yeah that's what section 69 of uh, the new penal code says so it's basically carving out a separate offense an offense that is not rape but still amounts to sexual violence because it is under a false promise to marriage or because under it is de- it is under deceitful means correct yes that's correct so criminalizing sex based on a false promise to marry is not new in india right the courts in india have dealt with such cases previously as you told us under sections 375 and 90 of the existing ipc so was there really a need to carve out an offense that is separate from rape a separate section particularly for this i mean not really because it was you know covered by section 90 and uh, promise to marry this you know there is an entire sort of jurisprudence on it uh, starting from 2003 which was you know the udaya versus state of karnataka judgment of the supreme court of india and it's you know it's been built on several times there has been a distinction between you know false promise of marriage breach of promise so it's it's something that has been like the scope of section 90 uh, has been interpreted by uh, various courts in many ways particularly the supreme court i think the but what it didn't account for was you know marriage using deceitful means right so right now this section very clearly uh, is spelling out grounds where you know this is where deceitful means are employed in terms of how they are understanding deceit so you know employment or promotion or marrying after suppressing identity or inducement so i think the while like the need of a criminal provision like this you know can be discussed and debated not just in the proposed code but also in the uh, current indian penal code but i think the sort of legislative purpose behind doing this and the way that i see it is largely to criminalize relationships or to obfuscate harms in relationships uh, that are against social norms right uh, so if one looks at this bit of uh, section 69 where there is you know an explanation to deceitful means one bit of it is saying you know after suppressing identity so if the uh, accused person in question has suppressed their identity so i mean when if one is one interprets that in you know the context of the sort of socio political landscape in which a provision like this has been used one can see you know the so called love jihad cases so cases of you know interreligious relationships or even intercaste relationships where you know one can say that this person has been led astray uh, because this person did not reveal their real identity or their real social location right uh, so i think because if you look at the other sort of tenets of that section of you know how they are understanding deceit like that kind of understanding of power has already been included within section 375 uh, so you know particularly after the mathura case there has been this understanding of power rape it was expanded 
you know with sexual harassment at workplace so you know with the case of bhavri devi so that understanding of power in terms of you know somebody being your professional superior uh with sexual harassment at workplace like those those kind of dynamics are already accounted for uh by the by sexual by the sexual violence uh provisions in india right so this is really like a sort of extremely thinly veiled uh manner of criminalizing certain kinds of relationships in one way and at the same time if you look at the second part of the section which speaks to the promise of marriage where it's very clearly spelling out and saying that without any intention of fulfilling it which was not there in section 90 although of course judgments have interpreted it to be as such but one can also very clearly see that you know with the history of that provision that it has been used to obfuscate the harm that has been caused to uh, women in relationships like intercaste relationships where you know upper caste men have engaged in sexual intercourse with women belonging to you know so called lower caste communities and then sort of reneged on that promise or uh, you know impregnated them and then refused to assume responsibility for it so so it's very very clearly a provision that is used to sort of entrench and maintain status quo in many ways through through criminalization which uh, you know one can argue has always been the function of criminalization you spoke to us about a jurisprudence already being there around this false promise to marry and breach of promises right tell us a little bit more about how can the intent to marry be determined how have the courts dealt with this so far and we spoke a little bit about intercaste and interreligious marriages uh, relationships sorry how have the courts viewed cases where the promise to marry has not uh, the marriage has not taken place in terms of intercaste and interreligious relationships so i mean the way that courts have seen this is like with promise to marry it started like i mentioned earlier with uday versus state of karnataka which was a case of an intercaste relationship where they very outrightly said that you know she should have known better uh, and that this was an intercaste relationship and it was never going to fructify so uh, the whole idea of her saying that you know she believed the promise is a moot point but then you see that sort of position uh being changed in uh not changed but like them building on that position in so many ways in uh dilip versus state of bihar uh where they're saying that it was not a false promise of marriage because you know the facts and circumstances of uh that particular case in no way establish that this man never had the intention of marrying her uh but this was also a case much like uday uh where you know the woman had become pregnant as a result of uh the sexual relationship so the court said that this was definitely a breach and so you know while the person was not convicted for rape uh they were held found guilty for cheating so you know they had to like there was the breach of promise of marriage was uh found in that case so you are seeing you i mean from here there was a very sort of clear distinction uh that the court has made between you know false promise of marriage and the sort of breach of promise tell us a little bit about that the false promise to marriage would be when the person has never intended to marry the girl has never intended to marry this person and a breach is if for whatever reasons they couldn't fulfill the promise that they did intend to fulfill but one it's it's not very clear how the court is making that distinction right like how is the court saying 
saying that this person who has breached this promise had the intention so 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 how the intention is determined is never fully understood and the reason why i'm saying this is because if one looks at a lot of like the facts of these promise to marry cases right there are two primary like sort of kinds of cases that emerge in this category one is where you know where like rape is basically the starting point for establishing a romantic relationship like for instance there is somebody who's you know engaged and which is which is which was the case with uday versus state of karnataka also uh, where this man you know forcibly or non consensually as one would say you know engages in sexual violence against this woman and then says look i will marry you but you can't tell anybody about this and then that first instance of sexual violence just then becomes the sort of basis for the formation of their relationship right where like you know this is like she's you know then they're subsequently engaging in sexual intercourse and that is the sort of starting point for the romantic relationship or the other thing is where you know where this person has been subjected to sexual violence to sort of prolong the existence of a romantic relationship where you know you're basically saying that look you know we are we are in this we are in this together we are really quote unquote serious about each other because we are having sex and we're obviously this is going to culminate into marriage so these are a, a lot of these are cases where like courts are seeing very very clearly that the first instance of sexual encounter is an act of rape like if one looks at 375 even in the absence of section 90 one would very clearly say that it doesn't meet the standard of consent because there is force there is you know even even in the most parochial sense a very sort of unequivocal expression of unwillingness or the lack of desire or protest against having sexual intercourse but that sort of instance is completely overshadowed with you know subsequent instances and the promise of marriage so the promise of marriage is actually a ruse to sort of undermine and invisibilize the sexual violence and the sexual harm underneath but like the promise of marriage in itself has become the sort of basis for you know understanding these instances all together without really engaging with the sexual harm that lies at you know the heart of it understood tell us a little bit more about how about rape trials in india per se where uh, so many of the rape trials are initiated by parents of young women especially in cases where they have eloped in a scenario such as this how do you think this proposed clause 69 of the bharatiya nyaya samhita will play out so i mean like i've already said it's a it's very very clearly at least the deceit part of it is going to be used to criminalize relation which is what like we are also seeing with pokso right the law used to prevent you know instances or of sexual violence against children or minors we're seeing that you know it's being used to criminalize queer relationships it's being used to criminalize you know all kinds of relationships that are not considered to be uh, socially acceptable 
so i think that is the sort of like that is the bit of section 69 which i think is going to be able like is is going to be relied on in a lot of these cases uh, where you know women women will be because of course in all of these cases the woman uh, has to be an adult otherwise it would be dealt with by poxo uh, but these are going to be cases where you know this the sort of you know that the woman has been deceived uh is going to be used as a ground for uh criminalizing certain kinds of relationships and criminalizing uh certain kinds of people so yeah i think i think we're we're going to see that happening more and more we are we're already seeing that happening uh in various cases but it's it's only it's only going to be uh bolstered by this by the by the promise to marry bit i mean i already think it's a provision that has been used to sort of obfuscate harm in certain kinds of relationships so i think one is only going to see that harm being invisibilized even further because intentionality has been so clearly established here right so now like if uh, like if one looks at the sort of reverse scenario of what one understands as quote unquote love jihad like so if one sees a dominant caste hindu man for instance saying that you know he wants to marry a muslim woman and then promises to marry her and then you know subsequently like impregnates her or abandons her or you know initially engages in sexual violence with her or and then promises to marry her so that she doesn't talk about it to anybody one will see then intention being becoming the ground to say you know he intended to marry her since the beginning and it's i mean it it's obviously intention is always going to be rooted in facts of case of various cases but if like history and jurisprudence on this is any sort of precedent one will see that intention uh, is always very very loosely interpreted and interpreted in favor of the accused so yeah one is going to be able to see it that way so the intention can always be there but the fact that the promise does not materialize the girl should have known that because it was intercaste or interreligious it would not have materialized in any case correct it would not have materialized or you're just too naive right for whatever reason it's on you you know it's on it's you should have known better so so it's a it's it's always going to boil down to the question of intention which is very very hard to establish in cases like this like you know what are the sort of material circumstances that one can put together like in 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 like other sort of criminal cases if one looks at like cases of you know harm against the human body if one looks at cases of murder etc one can see okay you know if i wanted to poison someone oh i went to a store i bought poison you know there are there are circumstances that can give you a sort of insight into somebody's mind to see if there was intention that existed or not but here it's practically impossible to do that i don't know how courts are even going to be able to deduce intention here and that to intention at the beginning of a relationship you know at a time when like two people have just begun seeing each other or or the first instance when somebody promises to marry someone it's it's very hard to do that so that puts the onus more again on the wronged party in 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 most cases the woman correct yeah i mean the yeah like the the prosecution is going to have to 
like he has this sort of really impossible task of establishing the lack of intention now since the beginning which is an extremely high burden of proof like you know even in atrocity cases they say that you know you know like you have to be able to establish that this person had a casteist intention right but how does one establish that you know it's not like if i am being casteist towards somebody i am necessarily using a slur in the way that you know people typically imagine violence plays out right like it's a it's it's very hard because these are all insidious structures of power you know and they play out in in like i said the most sort of like they are they form the undercurrent of intimate relationships and so it's it's going to be very very difficult to do this tell us uh, broadening this out a little bit just recently the supreme court uh, while adjudicating on a case said that an attempt to make out every instance of a failed relationship as a rape case will adversely impact the actual genuine sexual assault cases is this a valid concern in the light of the fact that so many rape trials here are initiated by parents and in the light of the fact that we're now going to get a section that defines sexual violence separately from rape hmm i think there has been if you one sees not just rape jurisprudence but one sees any sort of special legislation you know that is been carved out to protect uh, any marginalized group one will always see this sort of false binary of you know the real cases versus the false cases being played out right and this this category sort of keeps expanding to say you know these are the real victims and these are people who are misusing the law which is uh, their favorite term right so i think one is it of course relies on an extremely kind of parochial view of sexual harm and especially in cases which is something that both the legislature and the court have been deliberate oblivious to which is sexual harm in intimate relationships right which is why we are in the state that we are with marital rape uh, we are in the state that we are with any kind of form of intimate partner violence is that there is a an absolute refusal to recognize that people in intimate relationships can inflict sexual harm upon each other right so which is why there is a narrative of you know there being this this jilted lover this scorned lover uh, now who's extremely hurt and extremely vengeful who has now used whatever their failed relationship as the basis of figuring out a case of rape or or like charging someone with a case of rape right so i think i think it is that kind of binary that is being made out and i mean the concern for sexual section 69 is going to be the criminalization of a certain kind of relationship it's it's not it's not going to be like carte blanche romantic relationships right so it's it's always going to be the concern is going to be for certain kinds of romantic relationships which are already under threat in the current status quo and that is how it has always been with criminalization is that it has always been criminal law has always been the tool of you know entrenching status quo it has always been a status quo struggle so 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 the only concern that i see is with you know exacerbating 
the situation that were already precarious situations for uh, you know people marrying outside of acceptable social boundaries but beyond that this this sort of absolutely ridiculous uh, binary which has been you know that that the courts and even the legislature has drawn out on several occasions i i, I don't see uh, that is going to turn out i mean that is that is valid in any way right so how would they establish that he knows from the beginning that it's going to be a false promise that that sounds really difficult that's really difficult so they're very clearly saying that a false promise is one which is given on the understanding by its maker that it will be broken right whereas a breach of promise is when he intends to keep it but circumstances uh, do not allow yeah, him to keep yeah yeah but but if you look at like if you look at the facts of most of these cases zubeda is that even even if one uses this particular standard of false promise right one can see from the facts of promise to marry cases that they will fall under the bracket of false promise right because this man has forcibly engaged in sexual in a sexual relationship with someone and then she doesn't want her to talk about it which is why he's saying look i'm going to promise to marry you so let's hush hush about this right so if one uses whatever the logic of human relationships one will know that he's just doing this to cover his back you know he's doing this because he doesn't want this woman to tell anybody what he has done like if one looks at uday versus state of karnataka the first judgment you know which was it was a case where by the way the high court had found the man guilty of rape and the supreme court subsequently overturned the judgment and acquitted him you will see that you know he was her like the the survivor's brother's friend he would visit and you know he made advances and then he he called her to meet him and then he compelled her to have sex and she's she's saying this and the court is not disputing this by the way she's saying that look i'm not interested i don't think this is right you know we are not married or whatever and this is i don't think this is right and he says no 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 don't worry you know it will be fine you know i love you don't you trust me which is which is such a common trope in heterosexual relationships right where this idea of you know having sex with someone then becomes a sort of proof of trust in the relationship is then used to induce the person to have a sexual relationship and then she does it and then he keeps doing it and he keeps saying i will marry you i will marry you until she becomes pregnant and even then and on that instance he's not just dodging her he's also dodging her family and then of course it says that you know he it was an intercaste relationship so it was never possible in the first place but if it was an intercaste relationship he also knew it was an intercaste relationship right he also knew that his family would never allow him to marry her that is what i wanted to come back to so if why should the onus be on the victim to know that it was intercaste and therefore it would never work out exactly if i'm a brahmin man who's having sex with a lower caste woman you equally know about it right? i know about it right i know that it's not going to be possible for me to to be in an in 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 an exogamous relationship i i i know that like anybody who belongs to you know any privileged community knows what their families are like so so then why why is it that the woman is having to pay the price for it and especially when the and my my grouse is also with the first instance of sexual encounter in all of these cases which can very clearly be read within the ambit of 375 but is not and read. therefore the rape conviction can happen correct 
Exactly, but you have. So I feel like this is a manufactured category. You know, it's a manufactured category, and you have like I think because intimate partner relationships and sexual harm and sexual violence and interpartner intimate partner relationships has been such a no go area for courts that it's very convenient to just push it off in that. sort of blanket or that sort of gamut of cases right because then you can just simply say this is a jilted lover or this is you know an intimate partner relationship where things happen or you will say okay this is at best an act of cruelty so so that you don't have to address the question of sexual harm like what has happened here is that there is a complete denial of the question of sexual harm which would have otherwise been dealt with like if you look at if you remove the i love you's from the equation right and you see one man meets a woman and she's saying i don't want to have sex with you and he's still compelling her to have sex with you you would say it would be rape regardless of like like there have been cases where courts have asked rape survivors to marry their perpetrators right how have how have those cases then not become promise of marry promise to marry cases or how have we not said okay now let us look at this of about whether this promise of marriage makes the rape okay or not so you know by saying that like you should have known from the beginning that it was intercaste it was interreligious and therefore it wouldn't work out and the courts doing larger social harm so to speak by entrenching the fact that these relationships should not work out Yeah, I mean, there that has always that has always been the idea, and it's a it's obviously like with Section sixty nine, you are seeing it very clearly emerge as a legislative intent. But that intent also has already been given interpretive sort of foundation and grounding by courts through the years, you know. So it's it's like the I I in fact with Section sixty nine, I see it. as an extension of the jurisprudence of promise to marry in fact i think the the legislature has merely just spelled out and codified what the courts have been doing and saying for so long last question nikita do we even need criminal law to play a role in our sexual relationships do clauses such as these undermine women's sexual autonomy by saying that you don't know how to give consent and therefore you know you have to file this criminal case or in our country are they necessary for women uh, to be able to seek damages in cases of uh, in cases of things going wrong so i mean you know i have throughout this conversation spoken about like how difficult it is to prosecute promise to marry cases or how they could be validly prosecuted as rape under section 375 but when i when i say that when i argue that i argue and i say that within the ambit of you know the criminal legal framework that we have which very clearly marginalizes or you know doesn't want to look at only a certain category of cases as harm right uh, even if even by its own sort of evolved standards of understanding sexual harm within the criminal legal framework but if i were to look at it in terms of my understanding and the way that uh, i see criminal law in itself is that of course i don't think criminal law has any business not just in sexual relationships but human engagement of any kind uh because what we are seeing i mean what we've spoken about and the way that we've seen criminal law being deployed we are seeing that it is being deployed obviously in a certain 
kind of cases and i mean and historically been weaponized only against certain kinds of communities which speaks to the origin story of criminal law and criminalization in itself is that it is you know the master's tool it has it has been sort of created to entrench and maintain systems of power uh, which in our case you know would be uh the system of brahminical patriarchy and we've seen that play out in many ways in different ways which is why you know in various jurisdictions that they are also now thinking about what can be restorative or like non punitive ways of addressing uh, instances of sexual harm right which is which is also actually survivor centric uh because if one looks at if even if one looks at criminal law as which was you know the second part of your question uh necessary for women to be able to seek damages or for them to you know seek justice for the harm that has been caused to them we've seen this and there is an ample amount of work that speaks to this is that this is this is a process at the end of which obviously there is no sort of redressal of women for any kind it's also re-traumatizing in so many ways right because there are you're put on trial you know your uh entire being is subjected to scrutiny like the courts themselves have, have said you know you are you are made made out to be this a person who's weaponizing the law in a certain way who's misusing the law so this is this is nothing to do with you know supporting survivors centering uh or addressing the harm that has been caused to them uh in any way so i feel like there has been a lot of you know push to say to to widen the ambit of criminalization particularly after uh, the 2012 De- delhi gang rape and obviously the credit of this uh very very clearly goes to the savarna feminist movement in this country who for a very long time had some kind of unshakable faith in the institution of uh, criminal law to be able to dispense justice and we've only seen what it has uh, done in terms of not just you know increasing the ambit for criminalization of people belonging to certain communities but also sort of reinforcing the harm that has been caused to women right so i i think that there is value in thinking about non carceral as they call it or non punitive sort of harm ways of addressing you know instances of sexual harm uh, and sexual violence and i actually thought that the court uh, in dilip versus state of bihar and of course i don't say this to to say that you know it was the sort of perfect kind of solution or anything but the court is court said because you know the survivor in that case was pregnant the court said that you know there will have to be some monetary compensation of uh, what has happened right even though this doesn't fit within the ambit of 375 red with section 90 there is still harm that has been caused there of course you know money is not redressal of harm but there was an acknowledgement of the harm caused and there was some application of the judicial mind to at least think of what could be a redressal of harm that is not conviction or that is not incarceration even if the judge thought this doesn't fit within the criminal legal provision uh, and i think that there is a need to do that and i mean it's also something that we've done in cases of domestic violence right where women are going to now courts where it's a it's a civil remedy you know where the man is not incarcerated or criminal law is not put into protection in, into motion 
but like you know there are protection orders against women there is there are residence orders which make sure that you know women have access to the household where they were living or you know the man is not harming her in any way or harming the children in any way if there are children in the equation so i think there is a need to expand uh, one's legal imagination beyond the ambit of uh, criminal law which has done us huge huge disservice uh, so yeah and also can i respond to the sexual autonomy question yes sure i think the sexual like sexual autonomy and also very often you know one has in in promise to marry cases in particular i have i have seen this argument and this argument is very commonly deployed is that you know this is undermining women's sexual agency sexual agency this is undermining women's sexual autonomy and i feel like quest terms like sexual autonomy or sexual agency are not carte blanche terms you know these are not these are not terms that are operating only in like a certain kind of feminist imagination like women exercise their sexual autonomy and sexual agency in terms of like the real sort of struggles of power or structures of power that they operate in right like so if a woman is continuing to engage in sexual relationship with an upper caste man who has raped her because he's promising to marry her she's doing this because there is a there is a certain kind of legitimacy that the institution of marriage brings and particularly brings to a, to women who are considered to be you know non honorable or considered to be promiscuous or not even considered to upholding standards of femininity right which are standards that have been applied to lower caste women these which are standards that have been applied to uh, women belonging to minority communities so and which are which are also judicial standards that have been consistently upheld so one also has to be able to understand questions of sexual autonomy and sexual agency in these lights like one once when one sees or understands the question of sex work and this is been the argument of a lot of dalit feminists uh, and other anti caste feminists is that while sex work is work and a lot of sex workers collectives say that it needs to be recognized at work as work the idea of work in itself is a casteist construct right because there are women historically belonging to dalit communities and other oppressed caste communities that have traditionally undertaken sex work so it's also important to understand questions of autonomy and agency in this framework and to really complicate these questions and not just to use them to understand you know consent in these like absolutely binary yes or no or real or false cases that the world and people's lives don't operate in thank you so much for speaking to us today nikita thank you in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon